Um, okay. Mm. Welcome. Hi. Brave <laughs> souls um, to this live recording of Commonplace. I'm here with Saeed Jones, and we are in Open Books, a poem emporium. I'm really grateful to you for agreeing to do this. Of course. This is our first time yeah. meeting in person. Yeah. Um, and I'm really grateful to V. Conady and Christine LaRusso for, for being here, um, for our small but live audience. Yeah, Thank thanks you for, for being, being alive. Here. Yeah, <laughs> thanks for being here with us. Um, and to Open Books. And I just want to remind everybody who's listening that Open Books is a poetry-only bookstore, which is an incredible, yeah. unbelievable, rare, rare mm -hmm. incredibly rare um, kind of um, community, mm -hmm. not just community. I mean, you know, in the Commonplace episode uh, in which I go to... Hey there, listener. Rachel Zucker here. So you're listening to a conversation between me and the incredible writer Saeed Jones that I recorded live in Seattle on March 11th, 2023 at Open Books during the Association of Writing Programs Conference. And we've decided not to edit this conversation, but to just play it for you as it was recorded for a few reasons. One, we're hoping it gives you more of a sense of what it felt like to be in the room during this live recording, but also because at Commonplace, we're always experimenting with new formats and structures and a really unedited, oh, shush, a really unedited episode excites and interests us. So at the end, you'll hear me give some gratitude and ask for some feedback. All right. Enjoy. You know, in the Commonplace episode uh, in which I go to Taiwan and uh, talk to all of these independent bookstore owners, there the, the bookstores are not just bookstores. They're really community centers. They have... Um, you know, uh, live tapings. It sounds a lot like yeah. this. People just heard people uh, walking over uh, above. And there is a way in which I feel like just the existence of a poetry-only bookstore, mm -hmm. um, not just if you happen to be lucky enough to live in Seattle and come here in person, but also just knowing that such a thing exists. Right. Like there's a place right. in this country. Someone has done the work to yes. make this kind of space possible. Yes. Yeah. Um, and they just moved, and um, they reminded me to remind everybody that they love to be visited in person, but also online. Okay. And so visiting online and buying books online is a really nice way to support this place that wouldn't otherwise exist mm -hmm. in person. And I think it really, um, even if I'm writing in my little isolated space in New York, just knowing that like there are people somewhere in a bookstore that came in just for poetry right. is pretty amazing. Okay, so here we go. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've been trying to do this thing mm -hmm. recently of slowing down a little mm. bit, trying to give myself the invitation to bring my body and my mind into the present mm. into the space that I'm in instead of zooming around in the future and 
getting dragged to the bottom of the ocean of the past Mm -hmm. with regret and anxiety and all of that stuff. And so the way that I have been doing this, uh, when I'm alone, I've been uh, doing a sitting meditation. Um, I know that your mother raised you as a practicing Buddhist. Um, I am not in the chanting. I have not been in the chanting. Are you you sitting in in silence or? So I'm either sitting in silence. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'm sitting in, in in a very loud place that only I can hear, which is like, I love you, Pema Chodron, fuck you. I love you, Pema Chodron, fuck you. Mm-hmm. That's the that's that's a that's how I get into okay. my meditation. Uh-huh. It's really it's really helpful. Um and then there are other kinds of like visualizations, but mm-hmm. it's it's silent. Okay. okay. So that's one way that I do it alone. In conversations like, you know, this, I feel like the two best ways that I know of, and I'd like to actually do both, but you choose what you want okay. first. Yeah is to have you read something, Mm -hmm. I'm happy to make suggestions, to bring the poetry, which is both past and future, (laughs) into this moment, into this present, but also to, like, describe what's happening in this space Mm. and, like, in this space as much or as little as you want. Okay, yeah. Is there a poem in mind? Yeah. I was hoping you would read from Alive at the End of the World, um, the poem, a song for the status quo. Uh, Yeah. I thought that would just (laughs) bring us us here. I'm interested for your thoughts on this. Um, Yeah, I guess just what I will say, um, if you haven't read the book, if you're listening, is that this is a... uh, one sentence that takes up almost an entire page. Um, run-on sentence of all run-on sentences. A song for the status quo. The history of music in America is a sample of the sound of a woman sobbing that reminds me of a lie a man told me about myself once. While a song I thought I loved played on the radio and, stay with me now, listeners, the song is a cover of a cover And the woman who wrote the original version never got a dime for her work and died poor, doomed to haunt dusty, unread liner notes until the end of time. Because a white man stole the song from the black man she gave the song to as an act of what she thought was love, but, of course, was devotion. Which, as many but not nearly enough of us now understand, is often mistaken for love, but actually is more akin to unpaid labor, which is really a kind of slavery. Though I try to avoid calling things that aren't actually slavery, slavery, because most days, accuracy is all I have left, and anyway, I'm losing my train of thought the way that woman lost money she never had but was certainly owed, and I'm sitting in a rented red Corvette and it's getting late, and I'm lonely but not alone, and I'll be damned if the cover of the cover of the song isn't playing on the radio right now, and it sounds like an up-tempo jam about dancing until dawn burns the night away, which is really a metaphor for ruining a mattress with the smell of good and possibly great sex. But also the mattress is us, and the ruin is us, and the sex is us, and the smell is us, and I guess the good is us too, but I don't believe in greatness anymore. 
Because glory isn't possible in an America where the cover of a cover of a song that ruined a black woman's life can reach me through the radio and feel like romance or hope or a reason to reach over and squeeze the thigh of a man more likely to crash the car and kill us both than tell me he loves me and mean it. Yeah. <laughs> um, that was amazing. Thank and, you. Um, I mean, I feel like anybody who knows my work would immediately say, like, oh, of course you love that poem. <laughs> of course you love that, right? It was it, right? my editor, Erica Stevens, um, with this book. Um, that was her favorite poem. Interesting. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it has... Do, why? Do you know Why? Um, I think because, I mean, you know, the title is it, 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 and it, so it almost wasn't in the book. I just had this idea and, um, and this passion and you see how like cultural history manifests throughout the collection in other ways. Right. But I kind of had this baggage from, you know, learning about all of these other artists who had, you know, kind of examples of, of appropriation. Um, Little Richard comes to mind, for example. And, um, and so I wrote this poem and I think, Initially, I didn't see the connection to the major themes of the book, right, which are, you know, processing the paradox of being alive during an ending, a collective ending, and uh, grief, personal grief colliding with, um, I think, a you know, sense of political betrayal. And so I was like, how does this all fit? And then I, I was like, oh, it, 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 this, is the, this is the problem. This is the problem. And, and so often you know, in our ongoing grief um, of our circumstances, because that's part of what, you know, like apocalypse or systemic failure, you, you're grieving um, a change or something's been stolen, something's not right, can we ever get back, will we ever be okay? And I was like, oh, you know, well, we talk so much about the world is ending, and I'm like, it'll be helpful to have a couple of poems in the book that show why perhaps the world does need to end, mm -hmm. right? Like an America where this happens isn't actually an America I want to exist. Um, so that was the, the, the dots I was able to connect with that, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, another thing for listeners to know about this poem formally is that it's sort of one chunk. Mm -hmm. It's not just one sentence, but it's also one very full, mm -hmm paragraph mm -hmm. um, uh, sort of with prose margins and so the maximalism of the poem <laughs> the insistence on the way the poem wants to be accurate mm -hmm. you know right accuracy comes up in this but also acknowledge the way the poem itself is sampling right and yet the practice of sampling is both one of appreciation, gratitude, mm -hmm. respect, and appropriation. Mm -hmm. And so where does the poem, and where, in, even more importantly, the writing of the poem, and you mm -hmm. as a human, a live human being, with your personal grief, with your connection to historical grief, mm -hmm. to the end times, to, to you know, in what is the now in the poem? And this is something mm. that I 
you know, where, what's your positionality? Right. What's your responsibility? Mm-hmm. What's the betrayals, mm-hmm. you know, that have been enacted upon you? Mm-hmm. Um, like, but all of it sort of, in, in order for the real mm-hmm. to not be sampled itself or for the poem not to just be a cover of a cover right. of a cover of a cover, we have to be in the present yeah. and somehow present ourselves to the reader or right. the listener mm-hmm. in our totality, which is impossible. It's impossible. Yeah, it's right? inherently impossible. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, uh, in addition to just being in the same circumstance that I think a lot of us were like, yeah, we get it, you know, in terms of everything going around. I, I also have um, a, an anxiety disorder. I'm, I'm very, I'm a very anxious person. And um, like grief, um, anxiety, at least how it, I experience it, it's almost like time travel. Like so much of what you're talking about, that that positionality, that sense of just, just have a conversation. Just look across the table, talk to Rachel. That's all you need to do right now. Don't worry about what time your flight is leaving tomorrow. But, you know, anxiety is always pushing and pulling you um, through, you know, dystopian to-do lists and and random slights and things. What did I say last night? You know, like you're, you're just, you're not, it's, it's just very difficult to, to, to just be. And yeah, and so I think with A Song for the Status Quo, part of the reason it's a run-on sentence is... I wanted the poem to be my body. I, I, I wanted to use the text and the structure to try as best I can to evoke, you know, an experience, a, a sensation that we, because anxiety is so physical. Um, that, you know, I think we all have, and even if you're, if, even if you don't have like a disordered relationship to anxiety, you know what it feels like when it's just in your, where there, and I, there's a, um, a line, um, later in the book in a, uh, in the poem, um, A Spell to Banish Grief, when I say there's just, where there's, you're too you of you. <laughs> there's too much of you, you're too you of you, you know what I mean? Um, that sense of like, where you feel like, how, how is the skin possibly containing all of this right now, you know? And so, yeah, the, the poem has that. And then, yeah, I, I, I love, you know, like to me, music uh, and music history is, is such an important part of my life and a, an important part of my um, my art. And and so, yeah, it, I also want it, it's beautiful, right? Like it's I, I, the speaker is it's just being pulled and it's just very uncertain. And both because they clearly have a strong relationship to this song, which doesn't exist. I, you know, I just, I, I made all of this up. Right. But, um, but also the song, you know, they have an occasion, like this is supposed to be a romantic moment with this, this guy sitting next to him. And so, he, but he just can't, he can't contain all of it. And I just think it, it's interesting to like have a poem where it's like, we're not mentioning the apocalypse. There's no climate change here. There's no, you know, but but it's the um, maybe an emotional rendering of this moment. Yeah. Oh my God, this is like one of those moments where they're <laughs> they're they're. I don't even know. One of the one of the problems mm-hmm. with having anxiety, mm-hmm. and I think we have 
what I'm sensing from your poetics mm -hmm. is a similar kind of way that our brain yeah. s moves. Um, and one of the problems is it feel it can feel terrible because there's so much simultaneity right. of thought and experience. And as someone who really wants to be accurate in my poems as a enactment, not just mm -hmm. a recollection of experience, I almost feel the responsibility to somehow put all of that simultaneity into every poem, mm -hmm. into every line, into every book, into every moment. And first of all, I feel like I'm giving the reader an anxiety disorder <laughs> if, if they didn't already have one, right? But it also makes it very difficult, exactly as you said, like you just said this incredibly interesting thing to me, and I have 18 different w places right, I like want to start, yeah, yeah, right? Uh -huh. But language God damn it is linear. Mm -hmm. And I have been fighting against that <laughs> from the beginning. Yeah. Like I have to start somewhere. Mm -hmm. I have to start somewhere with the sentence. I have to start somewhere with the line. I have to start somewhere with my response. Listening mm -hmm. is simultaneous right. and thinking is simultaneous and multivalent mm -hmm. at the same time. But, but then I'm like, Oh my God, it's my chance. But <laughs> like, what do I say? Okay. That was like the longest I love preamble. It. I love it. Um, so and I get it. I love it. And yeah, I it. yeah. Yeah. So there are so many places I want to go with this, but let's let's maybe start with mm -hmm. this, which is so one of the things that I love so much in this book um, is we just heard an example of a kind of simultaneity of or almost like explosion mm -hmm. of this moment and inclusion I don't know what's the implosion maybe more than explosion like an implosion um, uh, or making the poem and the form into a container mm -hmm. that can contain the contradiction yes. the depth of it right mm -hmm. it can be embodied right. it can be it can it can give us not just the contents mm -hmm. of your thought right. but the the feeling mm -hmm. of being in your body, yeah. in your mind. Okay, right. And then there are, there are these other formal strategies that you use. Um, and I love that you just referred to the speaker. So in this poem that we just heard, there's you refer to the speaker. It, it is, as Sharon Olds would say, a, apparently personal <laughs> Apparently poem, personal right? poem, yeah. Um, and not only that, but in mm -hmm. the book, if you haven't read it, um, there are these sort of prose poems. I almost think of them as installations. Oh, I like that. Yeah, uh -huh. they're like, they're, it's almost like a short story right. broken up into pieces. Mm -hmm. The first one is called Said, or the other one, colon, I, mm -hmm. which also looks like a one. Mm -hmm. And then they, at the, at the end, they each say, continued and they reappear mm -hmm. throughout the book and the book ends i'm sorry i won't read the last line but <laughs> you know, spoiler alert um with one of these continued, continued period <laughs> yes and so i i mean in addition to the maximalism and, the, mm -hmm. and like the portrayal of the anxious simultaneous mind mm -hmm. this like real consideration of like who is the speaker? Right. What is the I? Um, 
in the poem that we just heard, there's the speaker, mm -hmm. maybe you, maybe not you, and another right. uh, who is, it's very important that this moment of like, who is the other in mm -hmm. the poem? Is the other loving, safe, violent? Uh, what is the expression right. of those feelings? All of those are really important. And the, and the image, I would say it's even more than an image, the feeling of reaching for the other's thigh mm -hmm. is like this moment of like reality mm -hmm. in the poem. Okay. But then throughout the poem, we're, throughout the book, we're constantly made aware of who are you mm -hmm. in this book? Yeah. And where is the reader? And which person do we identify with? And um, so as I'm sitting here mm -hmm. listening to you talk and thinking about like you just in your discussion of like this poem and what your editor liked about it and you said, oh, well, you know, probably everybody has anxiety or we get it. There's a, you're, you're describing a lot of we, a lot mm -hmm. of us. And I'm like really vibing with that i'm like yeah yeah i get it i get it and i i am like i identify with you um as the you know child of a mother who died about mm -hmm. 10 years ago very yeah. comp only child mm -hmm. complicated relationship with the mother i i like want to talk to you about um you know what it is to be the son of a mother sure. with no siblings yeah you know, this, I have only sons mm -hmm. and that like gender dynamic mm -hmm. has been very strange to me. Okay. This is a really long preamble to a question, <laughs> but in this sequence of the Saeed or the other one mm -hmm. poems, there is what I might say a, a cautionary moment for someone like me, <laughs> meaning a white person. <laughs> and there's at some point um, in this series of poems, um, the speaker Saeed describes a white person, mm -hmm. a white man, at a reading, asking a question, a pretty sure about how we fight for our lives. Right. Okay, so Saeed is reading his memoir um, at a reading, mm -hmm. and a white man asks a question, which we all know, it's like, is it gonna be a question, or right. is it gonna be a long <laughs> description of self? <laughs> With a question mark at the, at end, the end, right? right? With a, like a change in tone, right? Which here I mock, <laughs> and here I do. <laughs> I mean, I do that all the time, mm -hmm. right? And um, and yet I mock others for it. Okay, so um, and essentially the question is. Oh, there's so much pain. Right. There's so much pain in your work. And it's it's like is it a is it an apology? Mm -hmm. Is it a is it a concern it for a your well being? Yeah. Yes. Uh -huh. Is it is it is it kind of like a like I really got off on your pain? Right. Yeah. Like doesn't seem like mm -hmm. it. And you answer this question mm -hmm. um, basically by saying, um, it's not that my pain needs me. No, no, it's, it's not, not that, that I need I... my pain. My pain needs me. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So then we enter the sort of Borgesian uh, <laughs> oh my moment goodness. of oh, the book. What a compliment. Yeah. Where um, Said returns um, from this, 
reading trip, mm-hmm. which was out of town, and you're talking to your editor on the mm-hmm. phone, same editor. Still complaining about it. Yeah, yes, yeah. still complaining about the, the white guy at the that. reading and mm-hmm. the question, and like, oh my God, why do I get this question all the time? And I, you know, again, I'm identifying with you, <laughs> but also I'm like, oh my God, am I the white person who's asking about your <laughs> good, pain? Good, Like, Good. Pay My hope is every white reader, reader is at best deeply self-conflicted. Yes. 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 And and that's. I mean, I love this. Right. It's like it's a it's a torture torment. Like, mm-hmm. I felt I'm not a big blusher, but if I were, mm-hmm. you would see me changing colors <laughs> within my whiteness as I'm writing as as I'm writing as I'm reading the book mm-hmm. and feeling like, yes, I'm right there with you. And then I'm like. <laughs> No, you're not. You're the white guy at the, at the... You're just asking about the pain. Okay, so anyway, you come home, mm-hmm. and you're on the phone with the editor. Uh, you, the speaker, excuse mm-hmm. me. Saeed, the speaker, comes home <laughs> and sees Saeed, the other one. Mm-hmm. Chilling um, on the couch. Chilling on the couch. Just laying there. There's two. <laughs> There's two. And then we get like continued mm-hmm. and they have a whole relationship and mm-hmm. they have a conversation and there's and so this runs through the book right. whereas it's one of several formal strategies or and stylistic strategies and um mm, registers of address mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and ways of um undermining the reader's expectation right. about who the reader is, mm-hmm. who the writer is, who the speaker is, who what the subject of the poem is, all of these things. Mm-hmm. So I, that is not a question. I got it though. But yeah. so so I love this. I love this. Gosh, you you're, I, you and I I think our brains are siblings maybe. I'm sorry. I, sorry. I get it. I get <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. It's exhausting being it's us, so isn't it? Fucking, can I just say one of my favorite uh-huh. lines in your book was even my exhaustion is tired. Which <laughs> I mood. think about that yeah. every day. Yeah. Uh, I should like you. put it on a coffee mug. You should. Um Well, so so one thing I, I think about with, you know, and and we can talk about like the differences in like my approach to writing poetry and, and nonfiction. Um, my initial approach to writing, and I, I've always wanted to finally say this, and you're the perfect person. Um, as a as a writer, when I decide to write a poem, I don't mean the reader well. <laughs> I um, what usually brings me to write a poem is a kind of wickedness, a kind of mean. Um, that I think for me it's like what's the difference between casual language casual expression and thought and then the register that for me because poetry can be anything right but 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 poetry is I it, it's the, it's a different voice mm-hmm. it's not Saeed here sitting talking to you it's this trickster figure and um so there's a wickedness there um that ultimately as we hopefully takes us to to valuable ideas perhaps even to wisdom to vulnerability but initially i'm 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 interested in troubling the reader and and so with this book and there were it was eight years between prelude to bruise my first book and this book a life at the end of the world and and so, I, you know, it gave me time to think of new ways to trouble the reader. Um, and one of them, I was like, oh, well, you know, I, I, I look at 
reviews. I, I look at the response to my work. And also I've noticed, it's also like not just my work, but black people's work. I notice how often the language of praise for black writers' work is bruising. Think about it, bruising, searing, smoke. You know, it's a lot of, lot of fire, a lot of, I'm like, did the book punch you in the face? You know what I mean? <laughs> like if, if you look at the way people describe writing by uh, Roger Reeves, Roxane mm-hmm. Gay, Claudia Rankine, uh, Morgan Parker. I mean, you would think these books are just like running around, like assaulting people on the street because mm-hmm. of the praise, the adulation is like like bruising, scarring, like like the book, you know, and huh. And, and that language often manifests in description of my work as well. And I was like, okay, well, what if we just get into it? Like, mm. what if what if I build that discourse into the book? So that was one thing. And, and the way it does, you know, that a reader might be like, oh, wait, that was actually a question I had. And now, you know, like, oh, am I being called out? That's part of it. The second part of what I find funny is, um, or mischievous, is that it's the, the story, the first section of the story appears at the end of the first section of the book. So we're only like a few pages into the book and we're getting to an ending, mm-hmm. like because it, the the story opens at like after the last poem. This is the and so that's kind of we're like wait a minute, what aren't we just getting warmed up, Said? Why are you jumping to a Q and A? Essentially, I thought was just funny. Um, and then and then just like more broadly with the, the doppelgangers, part of it, it it emerged. I mean, one, I'm just inherently interested in doppelgangers. I'm interested in in gay men and the phenomenon of boyfriend twins. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I just yeah. I, and I might I might keep right. I just really think it's interesting. Is it like is it a, is it narcissism? Is it self love? Is it an attempt to heal? Is it does it emerge out of a, just a lack of self awareness and like you just genuinely don't realize that you have fallen in love with someone who looks just like you? Like it doesn't occur. You know, like it's is it is it a race white supremacy? It, there's so much going on and but then also in this moment, don't you wake up some days and just go, "There's not enough of me for everything I need to do today." I mean, you're a parent, right? You're just like, I, I sure could use another Rachel today. <laughs> <laughs> to get done, you know, everything. So just all of these ideas were just kind of roiling and I knew that I wanted to take on um, the discourse around the work. Uh, yeah, it was just, it was really fun. It's something that, and, and this is more broadly true for the book too, but I do think um, Side or the other one is a really great example of it. I just fell in love with the formal considerations, the structural considerations of the poems and the book and and all of these different things. Like, you know, the epigraph page oh my God. is wild and all of that, you know, kind of creating uh, constructed glitches where you go, was this, this poem has the same time? Was that supposed to happen? Did I misread? You know, can that? We, can we talk yeah. about, do you, do you mind? Please. Reading? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's it feels sort of weird to talk about that, but I feel like, the, there are so many. Mm-hmm. I love the idea of formal glitches mm-hmm. as the description of them. But the epigraph page, sure, yeah. if you want to read it I and talk about that, page. and I'd love also the poem that comes after um, that has the sort of alternate title. Oh yeah, yeah. I I'd love to talk about that too because okay. they're both these. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, cool, yeah. cool. Yeah, they're good examples of, yeah. the, of the glitches. Um, Cool. Yeah, I have. I don't know if I've gotten to read this. Um, so you know, it's an epigraph page. Um, so these are quotes from texts and artists who 
informed, um, I would say both the writing of this book, but, but also, you know, like my survival um, over the last few years. The first. Everyone is running now, and everywhere batons rise. The screams lift out of the street, and in restaurants up and down the block, doors are locked, and the diners are informed. You cannot leave. Not right now. Sorry for the disturbance. Alexander Chi, 1989. This objective vertigo is described by Frank Walderson as a life um, constituted by disorientation rather than a life interrupted by disorientation. This state is inherent to blackness and, I would add, queer subjectivities because, as Walderson explains, one's environment is perpetually unhinged. Caitlin Hale Wood, Cracking Up, Black Feminist Comedy in the 20th and 21st Century United States. Who's going to believe you, nigger? Richard Pryor, this can't be happening to me. As a boy, I seldom lived in the present. It hurt too much to be in the present. When I occurred to myself, I was myself in the future. Afro-pessimism, Frank B. Walderson III. Who's going to believe you, nigger? Richard Pryor, this can't be happening to me. In America, we have only the present tense. I am in danger, you are in danger. Adrian Rich, the burning of paper instead of children. You cannot leave, not right now. Sorry for the disturbance. Saeed Jones repeating a line from 1989 by Alexander Chi. Whatever happens next, please understand that Saeed Jones is somewhere right now, maybe in his kitchen or living room, saying, you cannot leave, not right now, sorry for the disturbance, to himself. Yeah, I love this as a way of opening the book. First of all, my students are always calling epigraphs epitaphs. (laughs) Which? um, Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I nicely correct them mm-hmm. or ask them or if they'd like let them to roll know with the, it. Yeah. the right word. You trying to tell me something? But one yeah. of the things I like about that mistake mm-hmm. um, or, you know, creative mm-hmm. move is it, it, it looks in my mind like these little tombstones mm-hmm. that are unchangeable, right? right? You know, at the, at their, if they're changed at all over time, it's because like weather has mm-hmm. like brought it down mm-hmm. or the book has gone out of print or something. But we we start right away and some people don't read the epigraphs right. also or they just sort of skim Scam. over them mm-hmm. like you know. But you have to pay attention. Like you're telling us from the very beginning it's you need to pay attention to where this book begins, right. where it ends, what a book is, what a body is, mm-hmm. what the present is, whether there's are you, what what position out what's the relationship mm-hmm. between the writer the speaker the reader again right the is this a, are you enacting mm-hmm. objective vertigo and mm-hmm. in, in this moment right. and this idea of like also the reader the writer as a reader mm-hmm. the writer as a thinker and all of those registers of speech inside each other subverting each other, mm-hmm. not staying in their sort of 
uh, historical normy yeah. boxes, yeah. right? It's maddening. It's, it's yes, maddening. and that's what I mean. I mean to, to to trouble the reader. You're right. From the I was like, I mean that was, it. it, it I I was saying to someone earlier today that I was like the experience of writing the book. Um, was I was so caught up in in creating chaos and troubling the reader mm-hmm. only towards the very end of the writing process and probably like editing it um, and thinking of you know order and all that kind of stuff did I begin to realize how I had been able to trick myself into such vulnerability you know like I was I was just I was having a hoot because I, I was just like oh this is really fun I'm going to drive people to therapy. <laughs> Like the way I'm structuring and writing this book, I think is going to make any attentive reader kind of be like, I think I need to go talk to somebody like this is, you know, because it is it's confused. I mean, getting ready for readings and I'm like going through the table of contents and I'm like, it's I get lost (laughs) myself. And so I just I was so excited to embody that phenomenon because so much of our lives um, is designed to. Uh, lie to us about what's going on so that we can continue to function within capitalism. Um, But, or and, the process of kind of getting caught up in that was so entertaining that um, that's why, and I think the the next little piece you want me to read, there's like that line, like, did I just trick myself into writing another memoir? You know, which was the last thing (laughs) I wanted to do. I mean, I, the way my mother and grief manifest in the book, I was trying really hard not to to go there not to write about that I thought as I think I I think a lot of artists feel this way you know there's a sense of false catharsis with certain ideas and themes and so I was like I wrote the memoir that's that's the book about that you know I'm good I'm good now surely surely yeah before we go to the memoir, which mm-hmm. I'm dying to go to, and I think we should go to that next, and then maybe come back to, mm. to that poem. I like that. Yeah, that's a okay. good idea. Mm-hmm. I have a, what what is a small, tiny little question. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> if 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 you have mm-hmm. an imagined reader, I mean, to some extent there is, right? Because you're 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 actively aware of, if not intending to, like trouble the reader, right? right? Is this reader gendered? Is this reader raced? Is this mm-hmm. reader, yeah. Can you yeah, I mean, this that? is, a, so given the fact that I just said my my joy initially of poetry is to trouble the reader, it's funny that the imagined reader is me. Um, mm. So with the memoir, um, it, I was very specific. I always had this image in mind in the first chapter. <clears throat> you see a... 12, 13-year-old Saeed go to the library looking for answers, and he kind of pulls essentially like, not the wrong book, but an unproductive, old, out-of-date, I would say straight up homophobic book about gay men off the shelf. And it's like, when I was writing the memoir, I was like, if what what if in that moment when Saeed's crossing his legs, you know, on the floor of the library, kind of going through, what if a portal opened? Mm. And... 37-year-old Saeed Jones stepped through and said, this is the book. Mm-hmm. That's what I was thinking the whole time. What what would be productive? What would be... Va- I mean, I was, I'm was i very stubborn, so Saeed probably would still make those same mistakes anyway. But, like, what could I put into his hands? And I think with, with Alive at the End of the World, yeah, it was still me, but I think it was... 
it's not just the pandemic. It really, it's funny. I, I think sometimes we give the pandemic a little too much credit <laughs> um, for what's going on. I mean, it's, you know, obviously it's, yeah. it's, a, it's, it's a huge, huge uh, sea change, right, at, at, at the very least. But I think a lot of the stuff's been coming at us for a while. But I think, um, yeah, with the life at the end of the world, I, I don't know. I think maybe it was like, Side of the last 10 years, mm-hmm. which is, you know, the 10 years of my mom passing away, just a yeah. sense of, and it, and, and it wouldn't be comforting. It would be, get ready, bitch. Yeah. Oh, you, you think the water's rough now. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, I have so much more to say about that. Um, but would you mind sure. reading the opening section yeah. from, yeah, this, I, I just want to, well, maybe I won't say anything about it beforehand. Just, okay. You just okay. read and then I'll, go I'll say it. something. I'll go into it. Um, Elegy with Grown Folks Music. I Want to Be Your Lover comes on the kitchen radio. And briefly, your mother isn't your mother. Just like if the falsetto is just right, a black man and black lace panties isn't a faggot, but a prince, a prodigy. And the woman with your hometown between her hips shimmies past the eviction notice burning on the counter, and her body moves like she never even birthed you. The voice on the radio pleads, I want to be the only one that makes you come running. Some songs take women places men cannot follow. Spinning, she looks at but doesn't see you. Spinning, she sings lyrics too fast for you to pursue. Spinning, she doesn't have time for questions like, what is this nasty song? And where did she learn to dance like that? And why? And who is this high-pitched bitch of a man who can sing like a woman and turn your mother not into your mother but a woman? Not even a woman, but a box-braided black girl, a fast girl, a chick, a vanity six, and how far away she is from you right here in the same living room, dancing with the song's hook in her throat. And you hate the voice coming through the radio because another sissy has snatched your dreams and run off with them, and because you are young and don't know the difference between abandoned and alone, just like your mother's heart won't know the difference between beat and attack. She'll be dead in a decade. And maybe you already know what you are losing without knowing how. But you're just a boy for now. And your mother is just a woman, just a girl. Body swaying, fingers snapping, and snakes in her blood. um, I I love that. Thank you. And it's, it's... It's hard for me to explain fully why it's so important to me mm. at this moment in my life. There are so many reasons for it, but um, after being married and being in a monogamous heterosexual relationship for 25 years, I'm divorced. I'm trying to figure out who I am. Mm. I have these three sons. Um, and it's it's there's something that I find myself very conflicted about, Mm. like wanting my sons to see me as not their mother, Mm. which Mm -hmm. includes seeing me as a sexual being, which the culture is like, 
don't don't do that uh, right that's uh-huh. that's how Oedipus Oedipus uh-huh. uh-huh. Oedipus yeah um but part of seeing me as not their mother I it just seems in, inherently connected to seeing me as a sexual being which mm-hmm. coincides in my development with being coming a sexual being mm-hmm. after a marriage which for me was all about not being a sexual being. Read of the century. I knew where you were going. I was <laughs> yeah. like, you going to say marriage, which was inherently not sexual. Yes, yeah. yes, no. no. I, I mean, yeah. look, I mean, marriage is about property. Yeah. And that's what Pe- it fucking felt like. People do not talk about this enough. Yeah. Marriage is a business arrangement. It is Marriage is about money and property. Absolutely. And people don't talk about that enough. I mean, you know, and I, I, I'm like, you know, it's, it's funny because Yinyi is in the room. And when I spoke with him, you know, years ago and I was still married, I think that was the first time where I said out loud, um, I think it was Yinyi who was talking about, like, you know, I, I started to have this awareness that, like, oh, my gender, my gender identity is changing. Right across my life mm. and and then also in speaking with Tori Peters I was uh, like Tori's great. I was like oh my gender identity is not femme or mask mm. woman or man it's mother mm. that's my gender identity mm-hmm. that's what it's been and mm-hmm. so now my kids are getting older mm-hmm. I'm divorced I internet date okay I fell in love mm-hmm. he broke my heart they do be doing that. Oh, it's just terrible, terrible. And I'm very confused about heterosexuality. It seems to make zero sense to me. Because it doesn't. Zero. Like what you said <laughs> about like the doppelganger mm-hmm. twinning. That's kind of what it feels like. Almost. No. Oh. It feels like the sickest opposite of that. It's mm. like heterosexuality to me mm-hmm. right now seems just synonymous with internalized misogyny Mm. why do i like men Mm. very inconvenient how do i how do i even see myself yeah not through i don't know if i know how to see myself not through the male gaze Mm. like i don't even know if i exist Mm -hmm. i mean it's so much um part of the reason i i wrote the poem is because I mean, just an, a, a, a simple example is that when someone passes away, in, in those first few nights, um, when you're like the ugly, like the ugly, ugly crying, when that's really going on, um, part of what's so devastating is um, you begin, and as other people share their stories about, like, oh, you know, Rachel used to do that, you realize how much you didn't know about them, yeah, and it is absolutely devastating to realize, especially with people, you know, like a parent or, or a best friend or like someone you, you loved, you loved, and here you are, your, your throat hurts because you've been wailing all night and then you realized that you are devastated um, by someone you didn't know as well as you thought you did. And it's and then another round of tears kinds of start. And, and you know, I, I wanted to acknowledge that from the beginning of this book also i felt like so so that's why like poetry is like i'm i'm not here to make friends <laughs> I, I, I am uh-huh. we're, we're we're gonna like fight it's you know um nonfiction 
my memoir ethos is very different, you know? And so that poem exists and appears. And I was like, the reader needs a roadmap. I want the reader to understand where we're going. And, you know, so that they can, you know, like when my mom shows up in the first chapter smoking a cigarette, it's like, pay attention, you know? Um, but also because gender, um, misogyny, whew, it, it is the great devourer. It, it just, I mean, we're all living in its mouth. We're all in the belly of that well. And it's, I've just noticed how often, even in an attempt to write odes or, you know, an homage to the women or the femmes or the mother figures who brought us here, kept us here, helped us get here, how often the, those works of art turn those women into what I call architecture, mm. you know, like the, like the idolization, they cease to be a person at some point in the thinking, right? Or I always use the example of like the male singer or rapper, whatever, whose songs are like sexist and homophobic as shit. And then like, thank you, mom. And I'm like, what the hell? You know, when they're accepting the award, you know what I mean? I'm like, that's how you're thinking. So I just, I, I wanted to alert myself to this. Um, and so I had all these ideas and I was like, oh, like this, this poem is making space for the revelation of grief that there are like doors in, in the lives of our loved ones that we will never get to open. Mm -hmm. And that's just something we have to sit with. Um, that gender, though this book is a, in many ways obviously about my journey into self regarding gender and sexuality, my mom was my mom, but she was also Carol Sweet Jones. Mm -hmm. Her life had an inherent value. Sure, I would argue she would probably say, like, yeah, part of the value is that I'm your mom and I'm proud to be your mom's side. But also, even without me in the picture, there's an inherent value. And I wanted to acknowledge that at least briefly <laughs> from the beginning. But also, yeah, I think it freaks people out to think about, I mean, we don't want, we're, we're made, perhaps understandably, feel deeply uncomfortable uh, to, to think about the sex lives of our loved ones, which by the way, I think manifests a lot in like homophobia with young people. Yes. Um, and, and transphobia, right? Like the obsession over trans people's genitals or like with, with gay cisgender people, like our sex lives, because it's like, I see with straight people, straight parents, right, with their straight kids, you ask them to envision relationships and dating and they can come up with all kinds of images. It doesn't necessarily to be sexual. They're like, oh, I can see you on your wedding day or on a date or da da da. And then it's like in visual, in, um, envision your gay kids dating lives and they're just like, it's sex. That's all that, you know what right. I mean? It's very, yeah. I mean, the book is such an incredible love letter to your mother. I feel like the beginning sets us up for, in so many ways, for both the fact that this deep love relationship, which again, I, 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 I feel, I want, there are so few depictions of mother and son relationships mm. that I've read. That's that, a good point, I hadn't thought about that. Right? Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, Jesus, it, adult man Jesus in lying on his mother's mm -hmm. lap dead mm -hmm. is the other one that comes to mind. Right. Like, can we, we have just go, something? We just go straight to the pietas? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, could we have something else between, like, Oedipus right. 
and the Pieta, like yeah. there's something, you know. So, um, but th- but that relationship includes the parts of her that you as the writer, so we're only going through you, but you've alerted us to the fact right away that we're only going through you and that she is a person and that part of the deep love that you have for her is connected to your awareness that there are parts of her life that preceded your existence that are outside of your imagination even. Um, and the, the, it's really an important but painful part of the book that for a lot of, she's not able to give the, you the same for a while. Right. So as the straight mom of a gay kid, she's very focused on like, oh my God, I have to keep you safe. Right, survival. Yeah. Survival mode. Mm-hmm. And, and that, the, you, you have a lot of empathy mm-hmm. for her in that mm-hmm. and, you know, reading about her and, you know, thinking about the moment in the book where, you know, she like, she shuts down the, the online chatting (laughs) and she's like, I'm going to call the police. If you contact my son again, she was radiating rage. Yeah. You know, so I have empathy for her, but at the same time, that rage is coming at you. Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. rage is not communicating. I love your sexuality. Yeah. You're going to like, it's like your sexuality is, scary to mm-hmm. me i have to shut this down mm-hmm. and there's not there's not space for her mm-hmm. to do what we see you doing in the beginning of the book which is to say i'm not gonna follow mm-hmm. him to this place yeah the song's taking him yeah, to a place i can't right. follow yeah i mean i mean one I, i'm learning you know again and again that obviously like our our country's gender and sexual journey is not linear either and it feels circular like there were times like I you know there's um Matthew Shepard I, I I write about Matthew Shepard and Laramie in the book and 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 this was at the when I was working on that chapter it was like 2015 I went to France and I remember I was working on that chapter and um I remember I almost cut it out of the book because I was like well they even care like I was just like well, you know I think we're doing okay. I, will, will, will this even be relevant to readers? Where we're, And now I'm like, oh my gosh, it's, it's, it's more relevant now, that chapter in 2023, than it was when the book came out in 2019, right? Um, but like, part of what I think I've come to understand about 90s liberal... 90s, early 2000s, liberal parenting, we'll call it that, that my mom was certainly a part of, was that it was informed deeply by Matthew Shepard's murder and uh, the legacy of HIV AIDS, right, which you see also in the opening chapter, right, as a specter. And so even with well-meaning, accepting, or at the time the word was tolerating, remember tolerance was the phrasing, not acceptance, tolerance, um, was was fear based? Was was survival mode? It was it was people being like, yeah, I came out to my mom and dad, and they started crying, and they said they were so scared for me. I mean, people still, you know, um, often it's grandparents now. It's interesting the freak. Well, and I know why, but the frequency with which when I'm on tour with the book, um, grandmothers in particular will come up to me, and they're like, my grandson doesn't talk to me anymore. 
Mm. You know, um, which obviously I, I understand that relation. And they're like, but I'm so scared for him. And 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 the thing is, it's like I have deep empathy for that. I mean, I you know, I, I'm I'm not a parent. I can't imagine. I I think not like just take mass shootings for example I, I i i can tell you that i probably wouldn't take the prospect of sending my child off to school every day knowing you know statistically was i wouldn't handle that well mm -hmm. you know what i mean so i can understand how and I, I write about that with my grandmother where you love someone so much that the holding becomes painful for them yeah. even violent and i think in different ways my mother either based in her like silence or her right, her like kind of protective mode. That's all she could respond to. Or my grandmother who who, who kind of took a, a spiritual tact, right? And it's interesting, like my grandmother and I, like we didn't talk, it wasn't necessarily very much about my sexuality. She wouldn't even go there, but it was mm -hmm. there. It's so clear that's, that's what she, but it was worldliness for her. That was the euphemism. Um, so for her, her version of like, I love you so much and I'm gonna protect you from this world is I'm gonna save your soul. And um, yeah, I mean, I think it's important for us to also acknowledge and, and write about and think through and talk about the ways in which we hurt each other when we are specifically trying to be loving. Yeah. You know, everyone is not an antagonist. Everyone is not um, a bully or an abuser. There are people in our lives who hurt us because they're so bad <laughs> and showing up for us. You know what I mean? It's... Um, yeah, and I, I think that I have deep empathy for that. You know what I mean? I, I was I was talking to um, a non-binary friend yesterday, and and you know, and just whew, you know, family stuff. And 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 I think, understandably, like a lot of trans non-binary people I know are like fed up. They're like trans one on one. It's over. And I said last night, I was like, playtime's over. You know what I mean? I'm like the, the the era of like, can I sit with you? Can you please educate me? Can you explain? I'm like, you get you better get on Google. You better go look at. You know, there are book lists. There, you know, because this is the and it is. Yep. This is the moment that you need to know your stuff, um, so that you can show up, so you can be a body shield, right, for these people we care about. And um, so it's not. It's no longer the time to to lean. On, on your queer, trans, non-binary friends to educate you, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Um, but yeah, I'm rambling. And for trans, queer, non-binary folks to really not internalize that shit. I hope that not. comes in as love, Ooh, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, uh, like I said, there's so much empathy, mm. deep, deep wells of empathy for your mother mm. in the book, you know, as as loving you mm. with everything that she had um, and wanting to keep you safe right. and wanting to and, and and feeling like in a world mm -hmm. where being black and queer was not safe is right. not safe right. but but you know how do you not make that mistake I mean I it's it's such a dumb example but I went on a date with a very good-looking man mm. and I was I was like he's so good-looking obviously he's a serial killer 
and I I hate that I absolutely understand that logic. Yeah. I hate that that is like, such what's a what's going on here. <laughs> can't I don't be good. Understand. Can't it's, be good. American but, Psycho. Yeah. yeah so yeah, I yeah. was like, and I I was really scared. Mm. I was like, okay, you know, we went out for coffee in a mm-hmm. public place, and then he invited me over. Um, Christine doesn't like him for another reason. <laughs> He's a prosecutor. Oh, okay. But he goes wow. for the white collar insider trader oh, people. No. But anyway. Christine's like she's like he's an agent of the state Rachel she's like serial killer is fine (laughs) serial killer is fine but prosecutor is not okay yeah anyway um, so then he invited me to his Mm -hmm. apartment which like you know what am I going to get in a van with a strange man? I was taught better. I'm going to go to his apartment. Like, I don't understand any of this stuff anyway. Mm-hmm. And then, but I kept going over and over like, mm-hmm. why, why is he, but why is he inviting me to his apartment? Mm-hmm. He's so good looking. Mm-hmm. This doesn't make any sense. And I have this really good friend who's like, we're, we're trying to deprogram ourselves mm-hmm. and each other. Um, and deprogram buddies. Yes. <laughs> very important. And she was like, what is, what, what do you imagine? Right like men like about you. Mm. And I was like, well, I'm a good cook. <laughs> Go on. I'm sorry. I'm like, a what? good mother. I'm if you're sick, I'm so good. Okay. I'm a really good friend. Okay. I'm a good listener. I'm like listing, listing. Yeah, girl, listing. you might be queer because that ain't that, that's not what men value. <laughs> and, and she's like I know my people. I'm like, oh honey. Oh she, honey. She, for him he must be waiting to kill me because he doesn't know any of the things I have to offer um like he you know if he wants sex like there are teenage girls for that oh my god I know horrible right horrible horrible I mean what so (laughs) I mean that's you know the the part of this is obviously anxiety is part of it right but also you know that's um it's, I guess I'm saying it's this fucked up mess. I mean, I yeah. was definitely taught that the point that being a woman. Right. Um, he only being, wants one thing. Well, being a yeah. person mm-hmm. and showing and being loved is about earning your keep. Mm. So I don't understand relationships. I mean, this is partly why my children really are the love of my life. Mm in one very fucked up and very pure way, which is I do work for my children. Mm-hmm. And that is an acceptable, normal. I also have limits, I have boundaries, mm-hmm. and I want them to see the parts of me that are not just like working for mm-hmm. their love. But there is, mm-hmm. between parents and children, there is a real a work mm-hmm. relationship, yeah. you know, of sustaining. Mm-hmm. I fucking kept them alive. Mm-hmm. It's the first, I mean, it's for yeah. all of us. It's our, our, our hopefully, you know, right. our relationship with our parents is our first working kind of partnership. Right. You know? Then if you're in a marriage mm-hmm. and you're the property part of the marriage, mm-hmm. um, I worked, I worked my ass off for my husband, mm-hmm. you know, in every mm-hmm. way. Um, and I don't want to do that anymore, mm. but I, it's, it's very hard for me to see sex as non-transactional, to see relationship as non-working, mm-hmm. you know, for the other person. Right. Um, and that, that kept coming up for me in all of your books, mm. actually, um, to, I would flip between identifying with your mother, mm-hmm. identifying with you, identifying be, being sort of like 
don't you identify? <laughs> yeah. Like, like you, pulling you toward yes, and then shoving you, you away and then you moving are, you to the side. You're, mm -hmm. you're you know, in the moments of uh, sex with strangers, mm -hmm. I was like, I'm having my first sex with strangers. <laughs> and then I was like, your life is, you have some other weird ass shit going on that like you're just, you, this is you, this is not you. This mm -hmm. is you, this is not mm -hmm. you. You see yourself here. It was sort of like I was like uh, a voyeur yeah. being, I at times implicated, but then at times an observer. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, well, I mean, for the memoir in particular, um, you know, initially, the one of the early seeds of the book was an essay that Roxane Gay edited for the Rumpus um, called "How We Fight for Our Lives," mm -hmm. and it's an early version of the Phoenix uh, 2008 chapter. <clears throat> That's one of the books's it is the book's climax, I guess, mm -hmm. and. Um, and so initially, the memoir was titled How Men Fight for Their Lives, based on that essay. Mm -hmm. That's what it was going to be much more tightly focused, right, on, on this kind of relationship between queerness and internalized homophobia. Um, and, and, then, and then you get into the work, and you're writing, and you're writing, and you're writing, and you're writing, and you're, like, deep in the woods of yourself, and you can't see the beginning or the, you know, whatever. And, and my editor... Um, asked to meet for drinks and which we did now and then while while working and I was like okay sure whatever and I remember he was so nervous he, his knee he couldn't stop like shaking his knee and, and we had just a wonderful working relationship so I was like why are you nervous and it was because he was like I think we need to expand the book because oh. initially the memoir was going to end um, a few months after the Phoenix incident, after that attack, um, and just kind of come to a close. And, and he was like, I think we need to write about your mother. You know, she, she's already there in the opening. You know, all the reasons that we now know why that made sense. And so that was the kind of practical. But out of that, and it was, it was a real challenge, you know, no writer who's like three-fourths of the way into working on a book wants to be told... <laughs> <laughs> you need to not only like revise, but like generate more <laughs> materials. Like, yep. oh my gosh. Um, I was like, me and my therapist are not ready for this. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but I'm so, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that he spoke up mm -hmm. and, and, and trusted that I could hear what he was saying. Um, because it, out of that, it pushed me to think more deeply, not just about how this book is my own journey, but the relationships. Yeah. And, and it allowed, and so then it was like, I, and obviously I like, you know, we add an entire fourth act to the book that's directly about my mother and, and, and her passing. Um, but also I was like going back and like adding more sections about my grandmother, mm -hmm. adding more touches about my mom at different points in her life and, and, and just more broad, even, you know, even with the guy in Phoenix who tried to kill me, there's this, you know, I, I, I'm doing work on the page to empathize or at least try to imagine how or why he got to that room. We now know why Saeed got there, but why did this other guy, what's he, you know, like, and, that, and so that's how we get to a book called How We Fight for Our Lives. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I did not want to um, erase or denigrate myself in the writing process. I know I, that, that the first, you know, a uh, few decades of my life, pretty action-packed that's quite a story you know I, be, yeah. I be, and I believe in in the value of sharing that story but also I felt there was an opportunity 
to to illuminate like the nuances of these other relationships you know um who could blame a black grandmother who was born in the 1930s and lived in the city of memphis her entire life for feeling that she needs to do everything she can between heaven and literally earth right to save her grandson to to do what she can to save his soul who, who and, and her daughter and, and her daughter's yeah. soul right like you know um who could um fault a black single mother working two jobs for not wanting to talk about her health mm-hmm. she's already so sad she's already so tired and you can talk about healthcare all you want it doesn't make the bills any more affordable you know who could fault for someone just being like i'll get to it when i get to it you know and and so i just that just seemed it was like these were aspects of wisdom that have come to me you know along the way and i don't know i just think sometimes you read um particularly memoir and it it's kind of narcissistic Okay, well, you that's know? the perfect you know? segue. Okay. <laughs> Will you read the, the poem? Oh, sure, yeah. I think of it as the triangle poem, but it's... How like, dare you? Yes. Yeah. And then we can... And then maybe the next piece. You're, and then you're good if at anybody, this. Oh, thank you're you. Quite, yeah, I see the vision. I, I was see the born vision. to not be a poet. Um, uh, if... And then if people have questions sure, also, yeah. we can I do love that. that. Okay, I yeah. Love that. Maybe just show it yeah. visually. Yeah, so, so we're like, we're here, and then and then we're, yeah. we're here. Yeah, We're here. The, for, uh, for listeners, um, this poem is on its side on the book, so, you know, literally and off when kilter. When I was reading it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, how'd you read it? it on the... Well, on the plane, um, I did this. <laughs> I had to, like, lock your screen. <laughs> oh, put your MacBook sideways. I love side. it. Yeah. This is what, and this is another example where I was just like, this is going to be so annoying to read her. You know, I was just like, oh, I love it. They're going to be so fantastic. pissed. Yeah. They're going to be so pissed. They're just like, Sight, will you stop? Will you stop? Also, yeah, I should say, I, I'm very much a Sagittarius and, and the, the mischievousness and the class. <laughs> class it's like even when with dealing with, uh, you know, serious themes or serious ideas, obviously, I, you know, I, I, I like to think I'm a pretty intellectual person. There, there's still like a, a humor, a quip, in, in my approach to yeah. it, because that's just, you know, I, I'm the, the person laughing at the back of the classroom. And so just to yeah. uh, add one more thing, which yeah. is so you're, you're again reading from Alive at the End of the World, right. and this, po- this book of poems you wrote after writing right. How We Fight for right. Our Lives. So, yeah. And so I feel like mm-hmm. some of the things you were just talking yeah. about, about the realizing that you have to kind of expand the memoir to mm-hmm. include not just your story, right. but the story of your relationships mm-hmm. with your mother, with your grandmother, you know, okay. So, mm-hmm. okay Absolutely. Saeed, how dare you make your mother into a prelude? And then night neons itself inside me. And I begin missing you in loud new ways. The sky burns itself bright, then bruises black. Things fall from the sky, and those things might be water, but could just as well be boys, or bombs, or billionaires, or birds. Honestly, between your death and me, it doesn't matter. Or I don't know, or I wasn't looking, or I couldn't see, because I've made a home out of how much I miss you. And there's no one here to tell me I should leave. Alone and night neon, 
I write, read, drink, drug, grieve, and all America keeps teaching me is that there are so many ways to die in America, which frankly is quite confusing because this country killed you a decade ago. And I'm still writing, reading, drinking, drugging, grieving, binging, binging, blacking out in the cozy, claustrophobic home I've made out of how very, very much I miss you. And the sky keeps throwing down consequences and corrections and histories and nations. I mean, come on. Who can blame me for not wanting to go back outside? You? A whole decade ghosted, grounded and ground down into unreliable memories, dollar word metaphors? No, not you. Mother as mortar and pestle. Mother as son mangling meaning out of his mother's misfortune. Mother as second draft. Sorry, but it's awfully true. You are prelude, and your progeny loud and unrelenting in your epilogue, somehow has to live on as your last sentence, uncompleted. Yeah, it's intense. Um, And then we turn the page, and the book is now right side up, but as we absolutely understand and learn the last few years, we'll never be the same. There's no going back to normal. We're never going to be like we were before. And so instead of a poem, there's a footnote (laughs) that says, Saeed wonders if the poem you just read would have been better served by a different title. I'll give you something to cry about. Or, after Carol Sweet Jones. Or, after redacted for the sake of the subject's privacy. Or, a decade into grief, Saeed gets lost in the fog between candor and shamelessness. Or, if you cry hard enough, any grief can be the end of the world. Or, Saeed wonders if he or his mother is the protagonist. Or, alive at the end of the world. Or, did I just trick myself into writing another memoir? Or, in this America, how can I call myself a good son and wish my mother, a black woman, was still here? So, um, I want to ask you... This is my last real big question for you, and you talked about it a little bit, but I want to ask you more specifically about the difference in your experience between writing prose and a memoir um, and poetry, although I love that you're, you're just messing with us all <laughs> through this book. Like, mm-hmm. you call some of them nonfiction poems, right. which is just, like, awesome. <laughs> um, and... So I'm teaching this class mm-hmm. independently cool. outside of the enemy, enemy territory, mm-hmm. so to speak. <laughs> um, and it's the class is, shout out to my students, um, 
based on my book, Poetics of Wrongness, in which, I don't know if you know this, but I quote you. Stop. Yeah, it's a weird moment in the book. I quote a tweet that you made after the Sith Lord, otherwise known as Kenny G. Okay, got it. um, Misbehaves. Very understatement. Um, And you tweeted, I, I don't remember the exact words, but basically like, you know, do you even understand what you've done? Mm. And and also this this question about whether poets in particular misbehave, mm. uh, reenact racism, um, homophobia, transphobia, um, under the weird guise of freedom of speech, mm-hmm. um, in part because of the assumption that people have that nobody's really reading poetry Mm. and that poetry is because in some ways that it's so marginalized that like um, what harm could it possibly do exactly but here you are and this Mm -hmm. is one of my you know great concerns Mm -hmm. as a writer um which is what how do i tell the truth Mm -hmm or tell my truth mm-hmm. about the story of my life, including my relationships with other people, mm-hmm. um, my children, my mother, um, lovers, for example, now that I have them, <laughs> um, and not harm them, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, not appropriate their stories, right. the lived experience of other people, mm-hmm. um, not rely on... Um, basically the marginalization of the genre of -hmm. poetry or the obliqueness Mm -hmm. of a lot of poetry. Mine is not. Mm -hmm. Mine is very like, and then this happened, and then this Mm -hmm. happened. Did I trick myself in my poem into writing another memoir? Mm -hmm. Um, But also, are there different uh, important ethical guidelines, Mm -hmm. constraints, um, expectations Mm -hmm of different genres. Yes. Um, I think there are. Mm-hmm. I think there are. Um, well, one, because, you know, and, and it's part of why I love poetry, but, you know, perhaps the queerest thing about poetry is you never know what I actually <laughs> means in a poem. And, and even in a book like this, I mean, it's from one poem, you know, like um, a poem like uh, A Song for the Status Quo, to me, is not personal narrative. That is, you know, it's all fictive. I just kind of came up with the situation. Um, and then, you know, the poem I just read, um, which is clearly autobiographical, it's poetry is very, very slippery. And so I think, you know, understandably, it's like, we cannot treat this like it's news, <laughs> like it's journalism, because it's just too slippery. Um, nonfiction, very different, right? Um, Working on the memoir, um, this ethical, I mean, it it kicked my ass. Mm -hmm. Um, One, because for a majority of the time that I was writing the memoir, I was in a newsroom. So I was, you know, both as an editor and then an executive editor, you know, managing like a whole team. So I was always thinking about the rigor and the ethics and how do we do this right and it's only getting harder and now this dude named Trump is president and fake news, all of this was going around me and then I would go home and and then try to ethically write a memoir about, for example, um, a dead person Mm -hmm. who is not here to advocate for themselves 
or um, about, you know, a working class black family that is not a family of artists. Um, as I mentioned, like, like not a family of storytellers. My mom liked to tell stories, but she was pretty different from the rest of her family. Like, that definitely didn't ask for this book to be written, yeah. you know, um, about, you know, my grandmother. My grandmother, Mildred, has since passed away. But like our by the time I, you know, was writing this book, our relationship had had improved quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I still I knew I had to write about this really difficult time. And I was like, how do you do this? How do I do this? How can I write this book that is literally about like surviving America and, and also like make sure that I'm not causing harm to anyone? That was my worst night. Kind of like I was talking about with the poem at the beginning. Like, how do I write my mother without idolizing her to the point that she's not even a person? Yep. She's just this perfect uh, you know, holy mother figure that, oh my, you know, how do I, how do I keep her human? How, how do I make sure that my love doesn't get in the way of like candor and honesty and depth, you know? Um, so it was very difficult. And I think with the memoir, the, the, those ethical questions informed much of what's not in the book. Interesting. It was a lot of taking away, um, one example, when my mother... So my mom has a heart attack the night before Mother's Day in 2011, and she's in the hospital. She's in a coma for about a week or so. Um, I truly lost some track of time. Um, if, you, if you go back and you read those chapters, um, I'm very deliberate um, about when I describe my family members. Mm. When I'm visiting her in the hospital... I'm very rarely alone in the room. Sometimes I was. There were there were certain times, but like often it would be you know her sister or my uncle Albert or my grandma. You know we were, but I I didn't. I, I was like we're not turning the camera on. Like this is so difficult. This is one of the worst days of their lives mm-hmm. too. You know, and so I was I tried to be very deliberate because I was like it just doesn't feel eth- it's hard enough. And so yeah, so I like I don't mention them though they're often literally like right next to me while I'm like. Oh my gosh. You know, so that was one example of how the ethics of it was, you know, where do we turn the, or direct the gaze? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then also, yeah, I guess the, the nuances in the relationship that we, that we talked about earlier, that was also out of it. You know, I, I, I didn't want people to think of my grandmother as an antagonist, as, as some kind of villain um, that was important. And, and also it's like why you see her later. Um, and it was interesting. I mean, my editor was like pulling, pulling, you know, like at the funeral, you know, there's a, there's a moment because my grandmother, she was, she was just stoic. I I think it's generational, you know what I mean? Or maybe it was just her personality. You know what I mean? She wasn't, she wasn't like a big effusive kind of person. And, but, but then at the funeral, there was just a moment where we're walking away from the cemetery and she just kind of, my baby girl, like she just, Mm -hmm breaks for a second and I wrote about that and I remember my editor was like can you give more and I was like there's nothing else like I can, I'm sorry <laughs> like I'm, I'm not I'm not going to I, I'm going to render this moment it's it's deeply moving but I, I can't I can't dramatize something that didn't happen and I'm not going to keep pushing it I understand why you're asking it but I, I can't do it with the poetry collection um I think the and, and part of it, you know, I think I, I, I'm more confident now. Mm-hmm. More confident. I mean, I was so it was so nonfiction's really nonfiction. It's really scary. I mean, if if you're honestly thinking about the potential of a memoir, so th- so this is also one reason because nonfiction memoir is not marginalized the way poetry yep. is. It's like okay, great. Now I'm 
being interviewed by Terry Gross. <laughs> now this book, you know, like the nonfiction and fiction travel and, and can reach many, 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 many more people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I was just like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, how do I do this? I mean, oh my goodness, the, when I finished the damn book and I had to send it, send galleys uh, to my grandmother, to my mom's sister, to my uncle Albert and wait, and wait, Oh, my, I, I, it's amazing because I was still working. I was like, how? How during the spring of 2008 did I get anything done? Because it was so scary. I was so worried. You know what I mean? And honestly, and I'll, I'll be candid because it comes up in in um, the poetry collection. My Uncle Albert and I, we really haven't had much of a conversation since I sent him that galley. Mm. I don't even know if he read it. Mm. You know what I mean? Not even like a, a message of like, got it. Looking looking forward to get, away, you know, get around. My grandmother loved the book. My mom's sister like loved the book. We had beautiful conversations. He never even told me he read it. And I think I write about him. He comes across. He does come across kind of like a superhero. I mean, he's, yeah. he really does show up. And I was like, and this one I say, men. Damn, you can't win for losing with them. You know what I mean? I'm like, if you read the book, you understand you come across like magnificently, yeah. but like, you know, so there, there is a cost. So yeah, so with the memoir, I, yeah, it was like me waking up at four o'clock in the morning, worried about the implications of, of this book. Um, with the poetry collection, felt way less, <laughs> way less stressed out about that way more confident in my capacity as a writer to navigate these, because I'd done it once before, I trusted. And then also, yeah, it, it's like, if for the memoir, it like the, the ethics often had me take things away or withhold mm -hmm. selectively, it was the opposite with Alive. It was like, put it on the page. So, so I wrote, Saeed, how dare you make your mother a prelude? I wrote the poem, it, it kind of came Fair, I mean, you know, you edit and you revise, but it came pretty quickly as a, as a, at the body of the piece. And then the next morning, I was like, you cannot title the poem that. Like, <laughs> like it really, like it, it's like yeah. you can, I was like, you have, I was like, you have actually lost your damn mind. You, 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 you're too cute. You get too cute, Saeed, you know? And I was just really, and I kept changing it and changing it and changing it. And then I was like, oh, okay. The ethic, the ethos of this book is whatever the dynamic. Let's put it there, right? Yeah. Like the the question about pain. You're writing that into the book. Okay, this intense ye feeling you have, where you just kind of scared yourself maybe into telling the truth. Just put that, and so that's how that poem, you know, that follows it is there with the title. So yeah, that was the the ethics of the purpose of this book, is that it is an object meant to as accurately as accurately and as artfully as possible, embody the the emotional, psychological experience. Yeah. Mm, mm. Mm -hmm. And so just this quick mm -hmm. follow-up to that, which is, I mean, I, I love what you're saying, and it it feels true to me that 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 poetry has this like slipperiness mm -hmm. um, of you know, what is the I, you know? <laughs> uh -huh. Sometimes we don't even know. Right, we mm -hmm. don't even know. And that poetry readers right. have some experience with this, mm -hmm. which is partly why some people are just like, oh my God, I, don't know. I can't, even even if you just like break a short story into lines, I can't read it. Right. All of a sudden I can't read it. The exact same, it could be the exact same text. Right, yeah. right. So, so, so I do think it makes sense to rely a little bit on the reader's skepticism mm -hmm about the I and about the story and the truth and all that stuff. 
But I also think that that is how some poets get into a shit ton of trouble mm -hmm. because they're like, I can do whatever I want. Mm -hmm. And you can't hurt someone with a poem mm -hmm. because everything is fiction mm -hmm. in a poem. Yeah. And that's not true. That's you not can't true. hurt someone with a poem. Yeah, you can. So I, what I see you doing, which, 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 you know, I think was part of why um, that book felt like you were enacting, you were putting in, like I'm struggling with this, mm -hmm. even here, even here, okay. where when I know that, you know, this isn't a memoir. Mm -hmm the ways in which it is becoming a memoir and mm -hmm. I feel it becoming a memoir, mm -hmm. becoming a memoir. I'm struggling with that. And I'm, you know, right. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, <laughs> dude, what, this is what happens to me. Um, <laughs> should we ask if people have questions? Yeah. yeah. You know, you've got a question. <laughs> so, okay. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So eight years between my, my first book, Prelude to Bruise, and then this new collection, how has my relationship to poetry changed? And what was the other part of that? And how has your relationship to writing changed? And, and my relationship to writing it changed. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, thematically, uh, Alive at the End of the World is obviously in part interested in the, the implications Kind of the, the, the I love talking about the ethics of, of nonfiction. I, you know, one I think it's fascinating, but also I think it's huge. And you know, um, so but yeah, it's about like the just like it's in some ways about like the legacy of grief or what I call like the afterlife of grief. To borrow phrasing from Sadia Hartman, um, a life at the end of the world is in part poems about like the afterlife of a book. What are what are you know? It's interesting. You know, poets were so used to. Um, kind of denigrating ourselves and being like, oh, no one reads it and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, well, surprise, I have to be candid. I know a lot of people read my book. Um, and so, okay, what next? What does that mean? Uh, and then, yeah, how do I then come back um, to poetry, you know, knowing now what I know? Um, so, yeah, that's obviously had an impact on, on my relationship to poetry. Um, I think also a significant difference in, or thing in those eight years was being in a newsroom. You know, being in a newsroom, both in terms of what I was doing in my own job as a writer and an editor, but then I was managing, I was working, I was collaborating. I, at one point, I was my, at my most senior, I was the executive culture editor, uh, managing like an entire department of about, I think it was about 30 people at one point. Yeah, and it was, you know, it was, <laughs> wow. Yeah, I'm like, how did I do that? Um, and so, I, you know, all of that has informed poetry because I was constantly thinking about and helping other people think about how to package and communicate and reach people. You know, how do you, you get people to read this, this long form uh, profile that you've been working on for months and it's really challenging and rigorous? How do you justify someone's time? Which is exactly what, you know, poets are always trying. How do we justify the reader's time? I mean, when I'm at readings, like I'll often say something like, thank you for being here. Y'all probably should be out there learning how to build fires or make knots or something. But <laughs> for whatever reason you've decided, you know, it's worth your time to be here with me in poems. And so I'm going to try to make it valuable for you. Um, yeah, and so I think, you know, an understanding of 
the rigor of of journalism and and the possibility, um, the way to frame poetry to make it inviting, um, to to guide people to the poem that's going to rock them. You know, how do you do that? Um, you know, I, th- I was very intentional with Alive at the End of the World. I know you're walking through a story and you just see the title and I think you're, you're going to have like, a, something's going to happen behind your eyes. You're going to go, ooh, ain't that it? And that ain't that it feeling, I hope, will like get you to maybe pick up the book. You know what I mean? Um, and kind of bringing you in with this very relatable collective acknowledgement of what we're going on and you think you know what you're about to get with this book and then you, you you get something very different you know once you're in it but too late I got you now you know what I mean um yeah so and, and that's that's more general um and then I think in ways uh that it's informed my poetry I mean one prose writing the memoir rewired my brain um, and so that's part of why it took so long to write another poetry collection, because for me, poems usually start like with a title, maybe the first line, that first image I want to get. Oh, that's so interesting. You know, a, a boy in a stolen evening gown. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And then and then I sit down. Um, for the eight years or so that I was working on the memoir, any of those ideas, if they weren't too um, like magical realists or whatever, I could find a way to work them in to the memoir. That's why there are these like kind of like interludes and moments. And I, I really enjoyed being able to put those in the book. Um, and so it was like, so that meant there were paragraphs, but there weren't poems. And so now that I'm back in writing poetry, I think you kind of see the the afterlife of that, you know, like writing prose poems, short stories, um, wanting to identify poems that I say are nonfiction, which is to say every event uh, and, and person described in the poem, like, that happened. I'm not just making, it's not just metaphor. Um, you know, wanting to to embody that. Um, using research, um, with a couple of exceptions, Prelude to Bruise, I mean, it's pretty, I mean, it's really just kind of coming from my mind and my imagination. It was not a research-heavy book. And with this collection, that's very different. Like, you can tell I'm going through the archives and kind of nerding out. Um, So, yeah, that's different. And I guess just the last thing I'd say is hmm, there's always an urgency in my work. But I I do... I'm trying to be nice. Um, I, I think, and I would say this as someone who's been like an editor in a newsroom and like, you know, um, I I would say this as someone who lives in Columbus, Ohio now, as opposed to New York city where I lived for a decade. Um, and, and, and I spend, and I've always been this way. I'm very much a journeyman in different tribes and stuff. I'm not around writers constantly, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, I spend a lot of time with people who like don't read, (laughs) You know, and I and I'm curious why. What 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 do you do? What are you interested? You know, mm-hmm. like I want to know. I think a lot of writers and poets, in particularly in particular, really underestimate how few people are reading books. Mm-hmm. Like like most, and I think most Americans, I think, say they read like 1.5 books a year, and it's very likely that one of those books will be a classic from like, you know, the the 20th century. Right, it's not going to be like the new great poetry collection that w- that set AWP ablaze, and and so knowing all of that, I think it's just it's really informed my work and the the subjects that I'm interested in, and it's almost like 
nonfiction has easy hooks, but I'm like bringing the nonfiction hooks to poetry to hopefully guide the like people who know my work. And I'm like, I trust you got it. I hope you know what I'm capable of positively and, and want to keep reading. But yeah, I'm always interested in bringing someone in and it's fun. The frequency with people are like, I'm usually not into poetry, but yeah, I really liked your book. Yeah. <laughs> Such a good question. It's the question. People need to think about it yeah. more. They yeah. need to think about it more. Yeah, and I, well, the other thing I really love about your response is I feel like there's, maybe maybe I'm kind of like, this shows my age, but I feel like in my coming up um, in the MFA world, there was a lot of shame in admitting that you wanted an audience mm-hmm. i'm convinced it's because and look i'm beat you to the punch it's because a lot of our teachers are gen xers or are you know and and gen x was so obsessed with the sellout yes yes <laughs> phenomenon yes, yes, yes. that i think when the mfa like by the time i enter an mfa program in 2008 yeah there was a lot of like no one would talk about how you actually do how do you actually get published yeah. can we talk about taxes can can we can we can, can, agents maybe can we you know just like the the real basic um function of of the life um Thank you. yeah i mean granted there is a lot to cover in terms of craft and sure you rightfully can spend 2 years just focusing on that but if your intention is to have this terminal degree so that <laughs> you can have a career then you also need to talk about how to have a career yeah how mm-hmm. do how to even make enough money yes. to survive yeah. how, what kind of job right. you can do and yes uh-huh. i mean this yeah. is something i do talk about on the podcast mm-hmm. a lot um, and I think about a yeah. lot, a lot, a lot. Um, I mean, I, I was lucky, you know, some of the early uh, essays that became like, actually the first chapter of the book and um, the Memphis 19, the, the chapter of the church with yep. my grandmother, I wrote in graduate school because my thesis advisor, Rigoberto Gonzalez, who I was so delighted to get to see this weekend here at AWP, he took me aside and he said, look, you're always going to write poetry and it's, 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 that's great. We love that. Um, but, but poetry will never pay the bills. <laughs> Which is generally true, right? Um, like, I got—I mean, I, I don't mind being transparent about this. The book advance for How We Fight for Our Lives was three hundred thousand nice dollars. Um, thank you. But also not enough to live on. Not for the rest a, of your also life. that. Yeah, it's not—it's big honest. number, but then you yeah. kind of break it up and everything like that. But then you know, the follow-up book, uh, Life at the End of the World. I went back to my first publisher I knew, and they—they they were like, "We can give you two thousand. I was like, yeah. "That's fine. I know." I know yep. what I mean. It's, it's very different, you know? And so he was like, you, you're going to need to understand this. And he was like, what you need to do is start learning to write prose. And he was like, mm. your reviews, your criticisms, uh, criticism, critical pieces, um, your personal essays, those will lead to opportunities that will help you pay the bills. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that was just like one conversation. But generally, it was pretty rare to have that kind of uh, career wisdom yeah. shared. Yeah. yeah, I hope it's better. I hope it's generally better now. Uh, I think it depends. Uh, I know I've been pitching a class to at the institution at which I mm-hmm. am currently underemployed, um, uh, basically saying, please, please mm-hmm. let me do a thesis, a year long or semester long thesis. You know, com- collaborative community thesis workshop right. that includes some conversation about how do you live right there's no shame in these questions mm-hmm. in fact it's it's exploitative right. to just 
churn out these MFAs with mm -hmm. no job prospects, mm -hmm. you know, some of them with yeah. debt, all the shit. I mean, it should be, it, it probably should be, if I could design an MFA program, I think it would be like a, a course that you had to take your first semester mm -hmm. and then a course your last semester. So the first semester course would be, uh, you know, how do you find community? Yes. Yes, we're here and we're going to do, but but like, you know, things like there's this thing called AWP. You might want to go to it, but also let's talk about if it's worth, you know, how to make it worth your while. Um, here are some things to think about, you know, you know what I mean? Like how to make the most of this time. I was fortunate. My, I, my MFA experience was fully funded, mm -hmm. but like the thought of people going into debt for poetry, girl, you better tell them how to make this worth their time if they're going to be paying off these loans for the next... 40 years of their damn life, you know? And then I think at the, like at the end of the program, yeah, there needs to be, and maybe not right at the very end, right, but, but, but at some point there also needs to be a course in what next? Yeah. What are you going to do? What are some things to think about? Where to live? Should you yes. live in New York City? You know, like, you know, no. or or how that to, you know, what what are you, let's talk about, here's something, let's talk about strategies to make sure you keep writing Let's talk about developing an independent writing process um, because that's going to be essential when you're no longer, you know, having deadlines in your workshop or whatever. You know what I mean? Like that stuff. 100%. I would add to that. Write, learn to write a book proposal. Yes. I would add to that also. It is unethical to have an MFA program um, without offering three free high-quality therapy. Mm. to all the students yes. and other kinds of sustainable living practices. Right. So, uh, I mean, it's the opposite of like the Iowa model, mm -hmm. which is just mm -hmm. trying to be, you know, recreated, which is like, and then at workshop we have bottles of wine. You know, you know what you need? Some 12 step programs. Mm -hmm. and, and you need some water. <laughs> honey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There should just yeah. be like one class yeah. on hydration. Like, mm -hmm. you know, instead of this, like, competitive, uh, you know, craft where craft becomes, like, you know, anyway. Well, because, we because if, it, if it's, if we could, we could. Uh, we because because that. without that, it's just, it's just um, masturbatory. Yeah. Like, if you're not really showing people how to make something and how to understand the something beyond the context of the workshop that you sit in, you know. Plus, it's, not everyone it's gets to masturbate. Right. It's only certain in this professors yes. who get to masturbate. <laughs> and then everyone else has to be like, I learned so much right. from watching you masturbate. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And that's how you get a full-time job. <laughs> Can you write a letter of recommendation? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Also, that's a pyramid scheme, but that's a conversation. With oh, my God. Oh, well, I'm down for that. Okay. So I think we have to end. If if anybody has one last thing or if you have one last thing or – but. But I think, I mean, y'all are just incredible for being here. Yeah, thank and, you. And our friend upstairs who seems to have vacuumed. Living, they've been, they've been walking back walking and, and I, I like know. it though, but it, it is, you know, I guess I would, I would say, um, thinking about this space and what, and what you were saying about like a poetry um, bookstore, you know, being so rare. It's, it has been so busy and I'm sure listeners, yeah. you've probably heard. And it's um, lovely. Like th this is what community 
is, and and we're here in Seattle at at the AWP conference, and it's it's my first time back here since 2016, and mm-hmm. I'm really it's a challenge, it's overwhelming. There are a lot of people, da, 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 da. Um, but I'm just so happy to be here. Yeah, and I think it's really find the thing, the things that help you remember why you're here. Work, and and it takes work. I think sometimes it's like so hard like to survive. Like we, like we really forget the, the, the gift of joy, the gift of inspiration, the gift of beauty. That stuff is essential. It's, it's not just accoutrement. It's, it's, it's reminding us why it's all worth it. And I just, I'm so grateful to like be able to be in this space with all of you and just like remember, like obviously we know the world's on fire and it's only going to get hotter. Yeah. Um, And so it's really important for us to find opportunities for connection, for laughter, for celebration, for deep, wild thought. And um, thank you. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks. And thank you all. Thanks. You've been listening to episode 108 of Commonplace with Saeed Jones. Saeed Jones is the author of the memoir, How We Fight for Our Lives, and the poetry collections Prelude to Bruise and Alive at the End of the World. His poetry and essays have appeared in The New Yorker, New York Times, Oxford American, and GQ, among other publications. And I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. For this episode, Commonplace patrons will receive exclusive access to the full video recording of this conversation and a special discount code from Open Books for 10% off any of the books by the over 100 previous Commonplace guests. This discount code will be good for the month of April and will be emailed to all Commonplace patrons. Some members of the Commonplace Book Club will receive a copy of Prelude to Bruise or Alive at the End of the World, both by Saeed Jones, both courtesy of Coffeehouse Press. The Commonplace Book Club is made up of Commonplace patrons who support the podcast at a level of $10 or greater a month. So I hope you're right now thinking, oh, this is just the incentive I was waiting for to finally become a Commonplace patron. If so, please visit commonpodcast.com or patreon.com slash commonplacepodcast. Many thanks to Coffeehouse Books, to Open Books for allowing us to record this episode in your incredible new space. Thank you to the eight enthusiastic, fabulous patrons who honored us with their live presence, and to Saeed Jones for his generosity of spirit and humor and presentness and for his brilliant writing. Thank you to all the Commonplace patrons who support Commonplace. You make this podcast possible. This was by far my most gratifying AWP event. Maybe in a future episode, I will talk more about my experience at AWP. There were several things I did that were very, very meaningful to me, um, including reading in its completion my book, Museum of Accidents, for Wave Books. That was very interesting, very exciting, and I was at a long reading and did a bunch of other stuff. But it really was this off-site live recording, really having nothing to do with AWP, except for the fact that AWP brought me and Saeed Jones both to Seattle at the same time. But it was this event, this recording, the contact with Commonplace patrons, 
at this recording at a bar afterwards every once in a while walking around the book fair a commonplace listener would come up and talk to me it really made me realize that while AWP is not my favorite uh, experience event or institution commonplace really is so despite or because of my love for commonplace changes are afoot and I would love your feedback I love hearing from Commonplace listeners. I'd especially love to know what you think about this live format, about the short intro and longer outro at the end, about the way that while most Commonplace episodes are lightly edited, this one is unedited. And for patrons, what do you think about the video option? Please send an email or audio message to me at rachel at commonpodcast.com or there's a speak pipe option to record a message on our website. This episode was produced by me, Valentine Conady, Christine LaRusso, and Langa Chinyoka. And as always, and especially, thank you for listening. <laughs>